Welcome to the Italian Wine Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Vinitali International Academy, announcing the 24th of our Italian Wine Ambassador courses to be held in London, Austria, and Hong Kong from the 27th to the 29th of July. Are you up for the challenge of this demanding course? Do you want to be the next Italian Wine Ambassador? Learn more and apply now at vinitaliinternational.com. My name is Polly Hammond, and you are listening to Uncorked, the Italian wine podcast series about all things marketing and communication. Join me each week for candid conversations with experts from within and beyond the wine world as we explore what it takes to build a profitable business in today's constantly shifting environment. This week, we welcome one of the true free thinkers in wine, Dan Petrosky, founder and winemaker at Masican. Anyone who follows wine media will know Dan a renowned innovator, self-taught winemaker, and consummate storyteller. Today, we talk about taking chances, tackling big issues, and the myriad possibilities for tomorrow's wine marketing. Let's get into it. Welcome, Dan Petrosky. I am super excited to interview you because you and I, like, we cross streams from time to time, but I have never had a chance to actually sit down and speak with you. So glad to have you here. Thank you so much, Polly. I feel the same way. So, um, you do a lot of interviews and when I was doing the research for this podcast, I was thinking to myself, Hmm, how do we actually make certain that we're just not regurgitating the same old answers that you've given time after time after time. So what I'm going to say is if anybody wants to know how you got into wine, that's all been talked about, you know, if anyone wants to know about Larkney, that's all been talked about, we're going to skip over all of that. Because I want to talk with you about the weird ass decisions that you make around building Maskin. I'm fascinated by this. So that's the direction that I hope that we will go today. Um, To get us started, I am going to ask you to just give a brief overview of Maskin as a brand just in case there's anyone listening to this who's never heard of it before, which would be a shocker. <laughs> no, I appreciate it. And um, honestly, it's hard for me to regurgitate anything because I wake up every day and my mind changes and, and my ideas evolve and I push forward and I look to people like yourself and I look to social media and I look to journalists and news media for inspiration uh, for how to change and evolve and build a better brand, build a better marketing concept and build and then also build better wines at, at the core of it you know masakana is a winery uh, i started in 2009 it was started because i felt that there was a, a cultural gap between climate place and what people were drinking in napa and sonoma we were you know we were making these really warm weather sunshine filled rich, rich red wines and even white wines um and we were drinking them in Mediterranean climate, which having lived in the Mediterranean for a year, lived in, in the South of Italy for a year, um, that wasn't the case uh, that I, in, in, in how we were uh, eating and drinking and hanging out and communicating and, uh, and living our best lives. Um, but here, it was, I just found that there was a weird American gap between, you know, what grows together goes together, but it didn't make it, that wasn't the, the case here. Uh, Especially in regards to the drinking culture, 
Yeah, with the drinking yeah. culture here. So I just so that's how Moscow started. It started with this kind of um, I need to break this. Uh, I need to break this down. I need to bridge this gap. I need to get back to my romance and nostalgia of having lived in Europe and drank nothing but white wines and you know was right in the Mediterranean Sea the whole time. Um, and that was uh, that's really the impetus to it all. And you know, fast forward to to present day, you see a lot more of that coming out in my marketing and my communications. My uh, my website looks like a travel website. It doesn't really look like a wine website. Um, I just can, I'm commissioning someone who's going to be traveling through South France and Italy uh, in the next few weeks to you know to to, to take pictures with the eye towards the Masakat website and because I want people. In my, from my perspective, I want to, I don't own anything. I don't own a vineyard. I don't own a winery. I have no place for you to come and have a great experience like you do. And if you travel and visit Napa Valley or Sonoma County or some of the other great wineries of the world, I, I have to trigger something inside you to want you with Masakan and with my imaging, with my communication to want you to continue to build a relationship with the brand. So that is, that's what I do every day in you know my own mind and i try to put it forth in in actuality on paper or on the web or in social or, or whatnot so it's interesting that you would bring that up because i was at an event in bordeaux a couple of weeks ago the um actor change symposium that was run by vin expo and Pierre Mansour, who is with the Wine Society, it was the first time I'd ever heard someone on a panel say, the part of climate change that we're not discussing is that our drinking is changing. You know, the, the world, the environment in which we live has a direct impact on what we consume. And, and this is just it is completely glossed over. And I mean, fair enough, because we're all freaked out about climate change, right? So I, I think it's completely reasonable that we're not sitting around talking about that. I'm really glad that, that you brought that up. I kind of want to jump into the efforts that you've made that when I say are weird, they're not weird to the rest of the world, but they're kind of weird in the wine world. So I mean, way back in the day, you're, you're talking about NFTs now, but you've been involved in NFTs for a long time, correct? Yeah, I, there's a lot, there's a lot, we can, we're going to talk for a while talking. Um, oh yeah. <laughs> well, do you know the crazy thing? I can see all your <laughs> NFTs. I go into OpenSea.io yeah. and I'm like, oh, and that's a part of, that's a part of the NFT world that I find completely fascinating. And I'm like, oh, look, everything, he's a Steve Aoki fan. Yeah. Who knew, you know? <laughs> no, I just, I literally, uh, 15 minutes ago, just bought another NFT. Um, I used to work at Time Magazine, and Time has gone deep into crypto and NFTs, and they have a uh, they have a, a whole background of called Time Pieces, and it's they get artists to come in and, and kind of work on culturally significant things that are happening uh, in the moment. Uh, but I just actually bought a Time Magazine thing called Pieces. It's a slices and covers, like generative art of the covers of the 52 issues of Time in the year 2020. You know, probably the most pivotal year in our lifetime. Um, so to own something that's historical that also has a personal uh, connection to me uh, is really important. And I, and I find, you know, I, I, I find that the NFT world um, a little bit miscommunicated. I think we've done a bad, I think the industry, I think the people behind it, I think the metaverse has been kind of poorly constructed from a marketing perspective. Um, I think climate change. I hear you, man. I'm, I'm right there with you on that one. <laughs> yeah. it, it, climate, it makes me bonkers. 
Yeah, and and then and climate change has been poorly communicated over the years. I think there's so many ways to kind of uh, to skin the cat in a, in a a positive way, an optimistic way. I've I've came out early and hard on climate change, saying, you know, damn you, shame you, this is wrong, you got to get better, um, and that doesn't work all the time. And I get it. And but now I'm like, oh my god, what generation of of humans has ever said that their generation is worse than their parents' generation, which is their parents are worse than their, you know, than their grandparents' generation. The next generation is always going to be better. So if climate change, because of the lack of water in the world, we can't have cotton to create clothing, what are we going to wear? Well, whatever that clothing is going to be, there's going to be an LVMH to drive that forward. There's going to be, you know, Virgil Abloh's to drive that forward. You know, they're going to be the next generation of people who are going to do great, amazing things. And I see that every day. My, my one ritual every morning is I need to spend 45 minutes on social media or more um, until I am sufficiently embarrassed that I haven't created such amazing content. And then I get up out of my chair and I say, it's time to go to work. Uh, whether that's going to see vineyards or going to the winery or going in front of the computer or going to a virtual meeting or whatnot. It's like that is my daily ritual because the amount of use creativity that you find in places like TikTok or Instagram or social is so inspiring to me that these kids are going to be running Disney one day just makes me so happy for the future. Yes, the world is kind of falling apart all around us. It has been for three years now. Um, but I think that there's a, there's a, a slice of hope and optimism. And I think we, you know, these social platforms that have given people plat- a platform to be creative and do wild ass shit. It is like, I just, am, I just smile so much when I'm on TikTok. So I'm watching these people who you would never think are that incredibly talented or funny or interesting just do insanely great shit and um and that's what i know so i have two of them i've got a 19 year old and a 20 year old and they are both quite gifted creatively and honestly i one of the things we're going to go off into weird personal conversation here um (laughs) one of the things that we always felt as a real hippie parent and i looked at my children and i was like my job is of course to impart what knowledge i can but ultimately it's also for me to learn from them because the world that I'm going to live a lot of my life in is going to have been built by them. You know, like this is, this goes both ways. This is not just like me dictating what my belief systems were and what my values were, but actually just watching how they grow. And I actually feel a level of guilt when I say that generation is the generation that's going to fix all the bad shit that we've done because they are knowledgeable. They are active and things that for us took time to adopt doesn't take any time. They understand it. I mean, there are some things about it that are, are that are like disappointing. They understand personal branding from the time that they're children, which I kind of feel like maybe that's not such a great thing. They have high levels of anxiety around this, but, and I'm not downplaying any of that. Going back to the social media thing, what I noticed, because of course you worked in media before you worked in wine. Um, do you, do you feel like that that just made you more curious and open-minded? Because I got to tell you, the winemakers that we we talk to, they're not sitting around for 45 minutes in the morning being like, what can I learn about what's going on in the world around me? You know, is is that level of curiosity just innate? and and Or, or did you have to realize 
shit, things are changing and I got to be more onto it? Um, I think it was always aspirational. I grew up in Brooklyn. My family never traveled. We didn't eat out at restaurants. I, um, I, I wasn't a reader of books. I was a reader of magazines. I would every Thursday, the first Thursday of the month is when the magazines were delivered to the local magazine store, um, in my neighborhood. So every Thursday of the month I'd go down, you know, after school and I'd buy, you know, a selection of magazines and I, then I started subscribing at one point. Um, I, at one point in my life, I think I had, I had subscriptions to over 40 magazines. Um, and that wasn't too long ago. That was probably five years ago. Um, when we, yeah, when I when I moved, I think I changed some of them or canceled some of them. Um, so I was always aspirationally flipping through pages of magazines, like you escape in a book. Um, I was escaping in magazines and being inspired and being curious about the world because we didn't travel. We went to the Jersey Shore. You know that was our whole thing, Long Beach yeah. Island, Beach Haven, um, and that was my curiosity. And now social media has taken that over. Um, Twitter is my newspaper and. You know, Instagram is my my glossy magazine, and TikTok is you know the kind of people Entertainment Weekly, um, you know, kind of entertainment side. But so each of the, if you think about social media, they have, they've kind of fallen into these buckets of what they provide. Well, they do a lot of shitty things too. Um, but I, I mean, I remember I never have. A I noticed account. that you didn't even mention Facebook in that. I don't. I don't have one because <clears throat> the oh, time in which you. the time in which I was. You know, first and foremost, it came out, you know, with the EDU address to, in order to subscribe. And then I remember in 2009, when I niece and nephews, and I asked my sisters, you know, are the kids on Facebook? And they're like, no, they left Facebook. And so so I never joined a Facebook account because I, I was only going to do it to, um, you know, keep in touch with my niece and nephews. And they never, they all left Facebook for Instagram. So then that's when in 2010, I started an Instagram account. Or uh, 2011, I can't remember. Um, yeah, so no, yeah, I never, never had a Facebook account. I don't know. I, it's, I hate it that it's so, when you have a business account on Instagram, it's so interconnected. You can't do anything. I still, to this day, can't figure out how to, to get admin access on Facebook so that I can do, promote my content through advertising. I want to pay money to Instagram, but Facebook is like locking me out. <laughs> I know. And, and I have to tell you something. If we've actually gotten to a point, um, I belong to a collective of marketers who are trying, like actively working to be able to build brands out of these monoliths because they do work really well, but I don't know a single one of us who likes them, likes the ethics <laughs> of it. I say all the time, well, if someone was... I mean, the reason I don't do a lot on social media is I could gain my numbers tomorrow if if that's why I was doing it. I, I just kind of feel like they, you know, good for my brands, good for my clients. They do still work really well for advertising. But um, and maybe this goes back to, you know, your days in marketing and media. What it's allowed for is a lot of just like boring ass marketing. You know, like we don't have to have that creative spirit of I've got to stop someone. The way I was always taught to do it is the person standing in front of you as dressed in their tennis clothes and has their tennis racket in their hand. And whatever you're going to put in front of them has to be good enough that they'll stop walking out the door to go play the tennis game. And, and you know, I think that 
I, again, coming back to that next generation, I'm so looking forward to going back to a uh, advertising and marketing world that is founded in really good insights, but also in like good creative content and messaging. Um, so you just about the Maskin Instagram account. One of the things that I notice on there is that you it's not as much about wine as it is about <laughs> topics that matter in the world. Um, so what was the, how'd you get, talk to me. I mean, there, how do I ask this question? Wow, Dan, why'd you decide that you were going to talk about all of the things that go on from like San Francisco homelessness to the issues that we're having? You've got Dottie writing a whole thing about Texas, you know, like, Social issues are what I see when I go on to that Instagram account. <laughs> yeah, it's... Um, Why? What's the well, response? Well, you know, a uh, couple of things. One, first and foremost, you, you try to get motivated and listen to a motivational marketing speaker and they're like, you need to tell stories, you need to tell stories, you need to tell stories. And the first thing that you do is tell a story about yourself and your brand. And you yep. tell that everyone, like, no, no offense in that valley, but there's 500 best vineyards here, 500 best wineries here. It's like we're upside down pyramid of Hands the best. Hands with grapes. You know, Hands with grapes. Soil <laughs> stories. It's like, I've, I've been living here for 15, 16 years. I'm like, I don't want to take another fucking picture of a vineyard. You know, I'm like, I love it. I love them. I'm blessed. I'm blessed, but I don't want to take another picture of vineyard to post on social media. I can, I can repost all the pictures I took for the last 10 years and no one will know the difference because my following base is growing differently and, and, and 50% of people don't see it anyway. Um, so, but, but, but more to the point, why did I change? I didn't want to tell stories about myself. I didn't want to post bottle shots. I didn't want to post, I didn't want to be writing and talking about wine all the time because wine is a I've never in my in my personal life opened a bottle of wine and drank it myself. I've always done it with friends, family, my wife, etc. I never, ever opened a bottle of wine. So I love wine, but I love that it actually brings people together. And when you're together, you rarely spend more than a couple of minutes talking about the wine. You talk about other things. And so during the pandemic, we all were locked up. We were all in quarantine and we needed to escape. And my first partnership in, in, in storytelling was escapism. And I worked with fighting um, and I had access to all of their editorial, all their photography. And I posted escapist concepts, you know, things we want to do. We want to travel. We want to eat. We want to do art. We want to do. And so I, I posted that. And I said, also, I'm going to do something different. I'm going to actually put words on Instagram. And I'm like, crazy. I put, I'm put, posting 1,500 word stories on in on Instagram, in the stories and, and um, highlights platform. That's just nuts. I've had people ask me, how do I stop it? How do I read it? I'm like, hold your thumb on, on the screen. <laughs> and like literally, because my customer base, you know, from Masakan, uh direct to consumers, they tend to skew older. Um, my generation for, you know, kind of Gen X, but older Gen X in their 40s and late 40s, and not necessarily super familiar with certain platforms. But um, so that was my... The first thing was when we're all locked in our home, we wanted to escape to another place. And this is kind of my whole metaverse theory as well. And then when I then when we started to create pods and we were gathering together outside, the world was falling apart. On top of the pandemic, here in America, we had 
um, issues in, in Minnesota, and then we have issues with our election, then we have, you know, this, this psychopath trying to, you know, overturn the country, and all this stuff was, everything was breaking down. Societal norms, government was breaking down, healthcare systems were breaking down, everything was breaking down. And so we were, these are things we were talking about. So we were drinking countless bottles of wine, great wine, we thought it was the end of days, so I opened all the best wines to my cellar for my friends, and yeah, we yeah. talked about we talked about voting rights in Texas, and who better than Dottie to write about that? And I so, oh, I'm, I'm sorry, she's amazing. So yeah, I love her. Great. Actually, I love Dottie because she's one of these people in wine that you can get like a two line email from her, and it feels like you've just been hugged, you know. And, mm. and that's that's we need that. We need that so badly, and we all need it right now, especially. Yeah. So, <clears throat> so I'm happy to sing Dottie's praises yeah. on the podcast. But, but the one thing I did was uh, for, so we went from lifestyle to news. And then I said early on, and now we're writing the cookbook. Um, what I said early on was nothing is sacred. If you hold on to things that are important, that you think are important and sacred, like being the best vineyard in Napa Valley for your entire life, you're, you're not going to have a marketing communication method. You're not going to, you're not going to evolve. You're not going to go anywhere. So we spent a year doing news and my, my my touchstone to that was the people I was hanging out with were, were wine writers and wine industry people during the pandemic. So I asked wine writers to write about stories that matter to them and to highlight the, the good issues, to highlight the hard issues, the challenging issues, highlight the organizations that were doing great work. We gave, I don't tell this to many people, but I guess I am now, but we gave, uh, along with every story that was written, the organization received a charitable donation from Masaka. Um, <clears throat> and then we wanted to put a human face on it. And again, not telling stories about me, but telling stories that we would talk about at the dinner table because wine creates conversation uh, in Vito America. Some of the conversations are hard. Some of them you don't want to have. Some of them, you know, you leave the table kicking and screaming and yelling at each other. Um, but that's what I wanted to do. And we did it. And all the, all the stories, except for one, were written by wine writers. Um, and it took, broke them out of their comfort zone. And that was amazing to me. Did you, so I've not seen any other wine brands do that in a ongoing way. Like there's certainly a post here and a story there. What was the response from your audience? I lost a bunch of, depending on the topics, uh, I lost a bunch of subscribers. I lost a bunch of man's customers. I mean, you have, I mean, your your customer has a life cycle of 4.7 years anyway. So if I lose them because I say something to write something bad, I don't, I don't post my pol. I mean, my politics come through the stories we tell, um, but I'm not, uh, my voice will get lost in, you know, a tweet or a black box on Instagram. Um, I'd rather be something more meaningful and spend time doing it. And, and also at the time it was the pandemic. I was paying my friends. I was paying wine writers to write stories. I was paying photographers. I paid, I pay a dollar a word. That's more than most writing publications in America are paying writers for content. I Absolutely. Was, I was not doing this. I wasn't asking anyone. I never asked anyone to do it for free. I asked everyone to be equitable. So everyone got paid the same. My designer, my editor, the writer, and the photographer were all based on the dollar a word, 1500 words, $1,500 a month. You know, I would pay each of those four people. And, and I worked with the, I gave people, I gave them opportunity to do break their comfort zone. And, and, and also during the pandemic, um, I had a good pandemic. Moscow had a great pandemic. 
the wines kept flying off the shelves and corks being pulled on tables nationwide. I was very, very fortunate. So I pushed that yeah. forward. Yeah, we um we had a degree of survivor's guilt because we were in an industry, I mean, you know, like for years, nobody wanted websites and wine, nobody wanted digital marketing and wine and, and pandemic hit. And we did very much the same thing. I, I think that what's interesting about that. So I go on about how when you've got these vines in the ground and you know, these huge multi-million dollar locations and your massive dozens of staff. We are the most risk averse industry I work with wine, you know, like it's just completely unfathomable to me. And that it feels to me like that then becomes an entrenched personality type. And then it's a judgment call against the people who are doing something different. Um, You know, from from day one, without having all of those like necessary in the ground investments, has that just allowed you to be adaptable? I mean, do you feel like you're more resilient? Did you did you ever say to yourself, "I'd be doing better if I had the tasting room and the staff and the the you know plantings and the whole thing"? Um, not really. I you know because no. originally. Masakan started as a kind of an adjunct passion project to my day job. And, yeah. and then, then it, it grew. I knew it was going to grow. I knew it would be successful. Um, I was very proud of what I did. I was, I hit a niche. I'm still a niche with the only white wine winery in Napa Valley. Um, I've, you know, committed to trying to make the wines cheaper over the years. And unfortunately I can't, I'm not able to do that due to just kind of market forces of, buying sure. fruit in, in and around Napa Sonoma. So no longer being tethered to my day job, I am now can free myself up to access more vineyards and, and be a, you know, a little bit more mobile. Um, and that's where I see my success in 2019, pre-pandemic. I said to myself, Masakana is going to be a 100% distribution wholesale winery. I don't want to deal with DTC because DTC is uh, expensive. Wine is perishable. The United States, there are there are parts of this country you can't ship to for ten months of the year. Um, I'm a small brand working in a small out of a small warehouse. They don't get any economies of scale and efficiencies. It's very expensive to ship wine across from, from California to New York. Um, I can't subsid. I subsidize that a little bit, but I can't do it all the way. I'm selling thirty dollars to forty dollars bottles of white wine, and it's costing me six dollars a bottle to ship across the country. I can't. I don't. From a transparency perspective, I was like, I am not going to bake this into bake the shipping into my price because I yeah. am I am openly transparent about how I make the wines. I'm going to be openly transparent about it's really expensive and it's perishable and it's you know, to ship this. So and I can't send sh- it in the middle of August when it's yeah. blazing hot and your wine, so, you know, your wine's not going to be drinkable and it's going to freeze on your doorstep in the middle of winter. And that, and from a consumer perspective, um, me knowing how I like to drink and how I purchase wine, I respect those things. And I couldn't figure out how to make it work from a DTC perspective uh, without like, keeping me up at night. It was working. Don't get me wrong. It was working. But I just, it just pains me so much that it's really difficult to push a, a quote-unquote, cheap for Napa wine brand like Masakan into the DTC space without feeling like, hey, guys, you have to pay the shipping. Um, so that was, so I basically, I want to go 
wholesale. I'm going to get out of it. And I'm going to, and I am going to go at the time, Moxicon was 32% of every bottle of wine I made was poured by the glass industry in the United States, um, in 10 different markets and 33%. So I said, I can keep pushing that. And I want to push that. And why do I want to push that? Because restaurants don't build wine brands, which is what every Napa Valley winery owner will tell you by the glass builds wine brands. And, and I take this from my magazine publishing days. When I opened the page of a magazine, the first thing I saw was a two-page spread with whether it was Ford or General Motors or Louis Vuitton or Prada or whatever. And that was the first thing I saw. When you open a wine list, the first thing you see is 20 wines by the glass. Whites, reds, rosés, yep. spark. And if I could be one of 20, or I could, and then I could be one of six or 10 white wines, I have a better chance. It's like buying. So I looked at buy the glass discounting as a as a way of buying five people at night to drink my wine. It was a dollar. I was I was doing I was discounting five dollars a bottle to be by the glass in some restaurants. That was a dollar per person I paid for them to try my wine. I was which is cheapest chips customer acquisition cost. You're yeah. rocking it. So yeah. I, I looked at it. I looked at it that way, as opposed to like my early days of trying to do some promotions on Instagram, and I was getting five dollars per click through, or Google. I'm getting paying two twenty per click through on Google search, and but and you are you are at the mercy of alcohol marketing regulations in, yeah. in all of those platforms. So did that wholesale and distribution model? Um, so like, so did that change? Yeah, it changed. So then the pandemic happens and. Um, and I had a really good relationship with retailers and retailers had booming success during the pandemic. So I had, I think they helped carry me as well. So it wasn't, a, I didn't sell to retailers because I didn't want to, I didn't sell to retailers. I didn't have the wine. Um, and now the wine was available because all the restaurants that were, you know, taking tons and tons of cases by the class weren't there, weren't taking them. And retailers were like, yeah, we, we, you've always given us some, now you can give us more. That's great. And then DTC increased. I increased my DTC up to thirty percent, um, and that's pretty big for you know a five thousand case brand. Um, and I'm and so and the money that I made through DTC financed my storytelling, financed my marketing. I put you know people are shocked when I tell them I spent a quarter million dollars a year at Masakan marketing, advertising, content creation. Wait, can you just say that again, please? Just say that for everyone listening. How much was that? A quarter of a million dollars a year on marketing, advertising, and content creation from Masakan. That is God n- bless you. That is nothing. And as you as you as you said, it's the weird shit that I'm doing. It has nothing to do with the bottle shot on the table and the people having fun on my Instagram. Nope. It has everything to do with the stories that I want to tell and how I want to. So tell. I'm going to interject. I'm, I'm going to interject just to say something for anyone who's listening. Um, a year on year, wine brands average four to six percent of their annuals on marketing. It's lower than almost anyone other than like oil and energy on the amount of money that wine brands commit to brand building. And um, so for me, when I say, you know, God, just sing that message out. It's not because I want people to pay me a lot of money for marketing. It's because how can we compete with markets where Coca-Cola spends, you know, 24 
minimum percent of their annuals on marketing. We've got brands who are upwards of that. You've got 30% on some. Industry average across all industries is 11%. And we're sitting around as, as wine brands saying, why are we not growing? But we, you know, spend 4% uh, on our, our on our marketing budgets. So, um, so I'm grateful to you for being open about that. Good. And this goes back yeah. to what you said earlier about how how do we create great content to stop people in their tracks? Show me one uh, wine industry advertisement that has been super sexy and stuff. <laughs> Look, I don't want I don't want to be a jerk again, but I. Paris Review. Here's my ad. You, sorry, people in the world, you can't see this, but it's a it's a beach scene, Capri, yeah. and it says drink Masakani. And it has nothing that it, just, it triggers a place that you want to be and what you want to do. You want to drink white wine, well, Masakani is a white wine brand in Napa Valley. You know, psychological, subliminal, keep hitting, keep hitting. Um, well, and it's also, all, to be fair, it's not a bottle shot. It was no. a bottle of lovely people in colorful swimsuits on a Mediterranean yeah. beach. Um, <laughs> I want to, so I kind of want to come back to some of this without getting too much into the weeds of like customer personas and all of that sort of stuff. You came into wine from a very aspirational position and you are a self-taught winemaker. You also sound incredibly normal and down to earth to me. So I'm going to ask, <laughs> how are you feeling about certifications and gatekeepers and a lot of the things, because we're both Gen X, a lot of the stuff that has changed in our lifetime as wine consumers. You know, we now have this officialness that sits between your average drinker and knowledge, education over entertainment, you know. What do you feel about that, Dan? It, you know, I, I repeat this story all the time, and I need to find this human being because it really made a difference in my wine drinking um, life. So I was had the good fortune growing up in New York City, working in New York City, having a corporate card with an expense account in New York City, and on the early days when Per Se opened Thomas Keller's New York City restaurant um, back in 2002, 2004, uh, in that era, I got to go. And I was taking a client and I didn't really, and they were, they were a wine drinker, but they weren't sophisticated. I was on my path to becoming a wine, wine, you know, being the guy who everyone hands the wine list to in a restaurant because I used to read a lot about it. Um, I used to read more about wine. Because those 40 magazines had some yeah. wine magazines in there yeah. probably. Yeah. Um, and so this gentleman in his perfect, you know, blue suit, and shiny shoes, came over and was so, he was, wasn't intimidating at all. And when we talked about wine or I tried to look important about wine in front of my client and do all the stuff, he just made the experience so perfect, seamless, generous, hospitable, and delicious at the same time. And I am gobsmacked because I can't remember who the hell this guy is. And I want to meet him and thank him because at the, after the fact, I learned that that was a sommelier. After the fact. This yeah. is like back 2002, 3, 4, whatever. And, you know, Andre Mack worked at, at Per Se at that time. Jimmy Hayes worked yep. at Per Se at that time. Uh, Michael Manila was a GM here in French Laundry. He worked at Per Se. I asked all of them, like, who is this person? And the one thing I can't find is probably in some book in some box somewhere. He wrote on a card a name of the reason that we drank 
for me so I can go buy it in the store. And I'm, I want to find that card so I can look at the handwriting and show it to like Andre and show it to Jimmy and show it to my Who was Who's this? Handwriting? Who was this guy? <laughs> and that, and so, so right then and there, I knew that this disposition was important and it, it would make the dining experience much more comfortable. And so I believe in, you know, I believe in the Samia in a, in a heartfelt way because it, it had a personal connection to me. Um, certification to take it on your own, your own path. I have an MBA. I don't have a degree in enology or viticulture. Um, you can choose what's important to you, what's passionate to you in order to help yourself uh, be better at what you do. And uh, I, there, are, there are amazing sommeliers that don't have, uh, don't have certification. They're amazing. There are amazing amazing. sommeliers who don't have certifications. That's so true. And I've spoken with psalms, like old school psalms, where that just wasn't even an option for where they where they were geographically at the time. And um, and unfortunately, and this is kind of one of the reasons I asked the question, those old school psalms who have all the knowledge, all the skill and all the hospitality training. Right. Um, There's a pushback against them in some places, even using the language of sommelier, because They don't have the certification. And I, um, I, going back to the education and entertainment, you know, you have gone aspirational. You don't talk about your wine in the highfalutin sort of way that we see quite commonly in, in Napa. Um, why not? I mean, <clears throat> well, I'm, I'm, you are a Napa wine <laughs> brand. Um, you know, my best, um, my philosophy on marketing uh, and, and the human condition is I don't, I want people to make a choice and then be affirmed of that choice after the fact. I want you to, oh, I want you to drink a bottle of Masakan because a friend told you it was great. You enjoyed it. You purchased it. And then a year later, you find out that that was number 20 on the one dictator top 100 list last year. I don't tell you that. I don't want to tell you that. You will build longer, more thoughtful, more healthy brand relationships with consumers if you're not pushing them. If you're letting them take their path, you're letting them make their choices. And when they are, when their choices are affirmed, you build their confidence. And now they feel like a better wine drinker, more knowledgeable, more. It's like I made the right decision. That's yeah, it's a cognitive bias. So yeah. for me, I am. I think it was really, if you, um, when I was, I, I had to do it um, because I wanted to support the, the publication as well. But when Esther Mobley named me winemaker of the year for the San Chronicle, yes. I had a hard time posting that. And if you, uh, if you look at it, it was, uh, my post was, it was at the turn of the year. My post was uh, Piccoliti Reese. Um, she was at the New Museum in, in New York, and it was like it was her hanging light exhibit. And it was just all very magical and creative and beautiful. And it was how I felt. So I yeah, didn't post a picture introvert. of the newspaper. Are I didn't you an post a picture. Like, honestly? Maybe that's why I'm going deep into the metaverse. <laughs> um, no, no, but, but are, you, are, are you like personally an introvert? No, no, no. I'm, no. I'm, I'm out every night. Um, I'm all the world around Napa. Like, I'm the mayor of, like, of certain restaurants. And, you know, people, when I walk into a restaurant, bars, just the bartenders just start making my drink. Um, no, I, I love going out. Um, New York City was like, the, you know, my best, the best 10 years of my life when I was working in corporate and, 
working in midtown, had to wear a suit every day, um, had a credit card that you know someone else paid. Someone else damages. paid. Yeah. Those are the good days. Awesome. But I am an introvert. I am I am not like a gamer or anything like that. But as I've gotten older, I what I've what I've left behind me is no regrets. I don't I don't feel a desire to um to have to be somewhere or do something. I don't get FOMO. Um I feel very fortunate that my life has been fulfilled in so many ways. And um and um so I I, I right now I'm kind of dialing dialing back, becoming more of like I just want to be at home. I think what the pandemic and the quarantine taught me is Eating and drinking at home is amazing. And we just do more of it. And and it also helps wine sales. <laughs> you know. So I'm curious about things that people don't talk about, because I think you will. I hope I'm right. <laughs> what are things that you thought were gonna work that didn't? Was there anything along the way that you're like, yeah, I have a lot of confidence in this, and then just poof, crashed and burned? Um, um, you know, I do a lot, I, I spend I spend a lot of time, money, and energy on doing all the things I do. And I'll be, I can't, everyone's like, what's the ROI on that? I'm like, oh, I mean, it, it's like, that's the only people ask that question. Those are people who don't advertise. I used to sell advertising for Time Magazine. Um, and, you know, television advertising, the whole industry is built on, on, on just the repetition of branding. It is. And brand like, awareness, brand lift. No, I bet you. I'll bet you um, a drink the next time I see you that uh, if you look at the statistics after the Super Bowl, no one after the day after the Super Bowl in America goes out and buys a Ford F-150. I bet you their sales are zero. But they just spent $5 million to do a a 30-second clip or minute clip on the Ford F-150. So I I just think we have to put things into perspective. So I, I would say none of my stuff works, but at the same time, I'm sold out four months of the year and I need to make more wine because I can't stock the shelves, keep them in restaurants, or sell to my direct to my customers because my wine brand sells out for you know it's only available at my current quantities at you know eight months a year. So so if we if we're not talking about <laughs> ROI, if we're not talking about ROI, and we're talking about happiness, were there things that you were like, yeah, I'm going to do this, and then you personally got into it, and you're like this sucks. I don't enjoy this. And and the reason that I'm digging into this question is that I feel like, you know, when you work in creative, when you work um, in, in office spaces, to be fair, we have so many spaces of work where we have feedback, you know, and we also have open discussions of failure in a way that isn't catastrophic. And we do it and we all learn from each other. Like that notion of thank you for the feedback and it's constructive is really, really useful. In wine, we don't tend to talk about things that went wrong or things that we hated doing. And so everybody's just kind of making the same mistakes in their own little pocket over and over and over again. Well, I just I just saw a great quote and that um, I never saw before this week. And it said, um, the amateurs are into strategy, the professionals are into logistics. And it was, it was a military war because that's, if you think about it, it's, uh, it's all about, that's a whole warfare strategy and logistics. But it actually goes to every part of your life. And I think about that too. I, I make a really delicious vermouth 
that came out of like it came out of the garbage of wines that didn't make my final blends, and I kind of decided to aromatize it because it was too stinky and too farty, and it wasn't you know tasty at all, and it would ruin my wine if I blended it in. So I made the made the vermouth product, and over time to get it to my standards, it was costing me more and more and more money to make it. But at the same time, you are fortunate because you live in a culture right now in Barcelona that uh, that you know there's a vermouth culture. You grow up with, you know, <laughs> totally. And um, Americans want to in, in bring that into their lives because every American who goes to Europe and spends time in, in Spain or Italy or uh, France, and they, they come back and they're like, "Oh, why can't I do this?" This or the other. And um, and that was the and and part of that was is like this kind of vermouth and soda or, or tonic or whatever. And I, so I make this really great product, and I just logistically can't make it work on my volumes on my scale. And also command the price for it that I think it's actually worth. Because the best vermouth in the world is dull and dry. And that wholesales for anywhere between eight and ten bucks, depending on where you are in the country. I can't I sell my vermouth wholesale like ten, eleven dollars and I lose money on it. So and the only reason I do that is because I respect the vermouth marketplace. I respect that Dolan is the greatest, you know, dry white vermouth in the world. And it works in every cocktail. And it's the bartender's best friend. And it's a luxury, it's premium. And premium is eight to ten wholesale. Yeah. So I I think about the logistics of that. And that's so I the strategy of the Vermouth project is I can tell you wax poetic about why I do it, how I do it, and why it fits into my brand, and how you know Masakan is aromatized. Everything uh, everything aromatized is damp trust. White wines, aromatic. Vermouth is aromatized wine. Belgian Coffee, wheat beer. beer, upcoming body right. products, gin. Gin. I know, I've got the list here smell. from a recent interview. Yeah. All things, all things that smell good, right? And um, But the logistics behind the vermouth just don't pencil for me anymore. And so after 10 years, I've pressed pause. And um, and I and there's about two dozen people who are asking me about it. Two dozen people don't build the market. So Sadly, no. So yeah, so I press pause on that. So that, I guess that was of all the things I've done. I think they're from getting to the vermouth. In the beginning, I was like, if I sell, if I can be the vermouth king of America, if I I sell a million bottles of vermouth a year and I make a dollar per profit per bottle, I can make a million dollars a year. And I was like, that shouldn't be too hard. <laughs> and I realized it's 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 not what I want to be doing with my time, and it's uh, and it is hard. It's harder. Yeah. So it, it's awesome that you tell that story because on the one hand, it's like, okay, it's something that didn't work. But I, but you did it. You tried it. There's, you were able to escape the sunk cost fallacy that I think is a real issue um, with an awful lot of brands. And that's not just why, and that's just like, independent business owners get really, really wrapped up in, but I've put all this effort into it. And what do you mean? I, if I stop doing it, then all that effort's lost. Right. Um, does that, and then also it frees up your brain space after those 45 minutes of social media in the morning to say, well, I've done that and I've tried that. So now what am I going to replace that with in my mind or my thinking or my strategy or my logistics? So, with that in mind, do you think that that changed your view of I'm going to be the king, uh, you know, of all things smelly? I'm going to have the gin. I'm going to have the coffee. I'm going to have the body lotions. It, it's it hasn't changed. I still think that Masakan can still exist in all of those aromatic spaces because again, it goes back to this 
this concept that I've been driving home in myself and then also subliminally in my, in my messaging about, I need to find your trigger and I need to, I can't, my trigger, your trigger with Masakan is always going to include something else. Um, it's going to include the first time you had Masakan, it's either going to be in a restaurant, it's going to be at your dinner dining room table, it's going to be at a friend's house. It's not ever going to be at my place of business yet. Right. Yet. Um, and so I need to find that trigger. And I think uh, aroma, as we know, is the greatest trigger for memory. And, um, and if I can kind of do that and bring Kevin. people back to uh, Masakana, it's just kind of, uh, you know, I'm, I don't know what I'll be. I don't know. I don't think Masakana will be a wine brand. I, I still, I, I quoted it publicly, Masakana will sell more wine in the metaverse in 2030 than they will in real life. And I believe that because it could be a fake alcohol beverage that people want to attach themselves to in the metaverse, just like they want to wear a Rolex in the metaverse or want to drive a Ferrari in the metaverse or want to wear Gucci loafers in the metaverse. Masakana will be that beverage that they want to associate with. And that's my, that's my, that's my long shot. That's my long game of creating that brand because that brand is, is going to be what we want. What that I want Masaka has, to, to have connection. Yeah. People. So much brand awareness and brand power, yeah, right? Yeah. And all right. So this cookbook, I do <laughs> want to talk about the cookbook before I, I let you off the hook. And here's why. I started counting the platforms that you're using for this cookbook. And for someone who's not doing like, quote unquote, digital marketing advertising, as you've said, you're, you don't do a lot of. All right. So we've got Instagram, TikTok, Substack, the so the experiential, the yep. IRL portion of it. And for all of that, then you say you don't even have to use my wine. Just use something nice and Mediterranean and wine. All right. So kick it down. Tell me about the cookbook project. So that was phase three of my nothing's precious every year. We're going to do something new. Um, for years, I've done wine dinners all over the country in amazing restaurants. I've been very fortunate to have great chefs cook against Masakai wines. And... Um, for years, I've wanted to put all those menus in a book or on my website in a way that was um, that was useful to wine drinkers. Uh, people who drink Moscato, you know, I, I kind of did that on my website. If you look at my product page, I scroll down and I have a couple of things there. Um, and so I was thinking again about the pandemic, the escapism about the pandemic, the stories we told over the dinner table, and then I was thinking about the food we ate during the pandemic and how it brought people together. And um, and so the cookbook came out of it. I, I had part of my, my kind of social scrolling, uh, an old friend of mine who used to cook at one of my favorite restaurants in San Francisco. She was on Top Chef and had a really big Instagram following and she was doing cooking demonstrations in her kitchen in Portland. And um, and then she got on TikTok and went super viral, got like 16 million views on one of her videos, um, 70,000 followers immediately. And I was like, and I was just, I reached out to her before she went really viral, <laughs> thankfully. And I, and I signed up, I said, hey, I want to do this cookbook and I'm looking for someone to do it in video. And I want to create recipes and I want to, I want to do it all video. And, um, and she was like, yeah, let's do it. And uh, so 
we spent a couple of months kind of brainstorming around what we wanted to do. I wanted to, to drive home the Mediterranean lifestyle, the Mediterranean cookbook uh, concept, um, and attach it to Masakan. Um, attach it to, you know, Masakan being these aromatic, fresh, floral, salty, um, you know, kind of white wines. That could be anything. So it could be, you know, wine, it could be a Martino uh, from the South of France. It doesn't need to be. Uh, a bottle of Masakan. And, um, and so, yeah, I, I've never, when I've done, I've done virtual tastings over time. I've done Facebook during the pandemic, uh, FaceTime during the pandemic. And I always tell people, don't drink, don't open all my wines. <laughs> Just open one, save the others for later or drink whatever you want. I've, I've done cocktail. I did, a, I've done over 150, close to 200 personal virtual tastings with customers over the last three years. And a lot of it is like, we'll just drink a martini together and talk about climate change. Or we'll talk about yeah. why vineyards are this, that, and the other thing. And, um, because people want to connect with the winemaker. They want to connect with the, you know, the, the creator, the founder. And um, and they don't want to but, feel like they're always being sold to. Yes, you know, like that's yeah, really yeah. also the thing is that, so, that you know. We are community in wine. We drink and we talk and we share and we break bread. I mean, yeah. we talk about this all the time. And it doesn't have to be what I describe as the buy my shit, buy my shit, buy my shit yeah. version of the... Nobody likes that, actually. So so that's... You just answered your own question. I, I took a long way to get there, but it was like, I don't push But you're doing sales. it. You're giving it away. I mean, like, I love this. You're giving it away. And you're doing it in video on Instagram and TikTok. So listen, it's not like I'm packaging it up and, you know... No, we're basically... Selling it... A, we're writing the yeah. book together. Um, Sarah and I have, have weekly meetings and we talk about the recipes and um, and then we're, and then you know dear friend Jordan McKay, book writer, wine writer, amazing journalist. Um, he's going to package it all up for us and then so each month you will receive the chapter on Sicily, the chapter on Liguria, the chapter on Rome, the chapter on Sarah worked in Spain. She stopped in Spain. We'll do a chapter on Spain. We'll do the south of France, and you'll get that. And then you, if you want to just watch the videos, um, go take the, the look at the recipes on a monthly and say, oh, I want to do that dish. You can go right to the whatever social platform, Instagram or TikTok, and watch it and just be inspired. I cook so many things based on just watching a 15-second TikTok video. I'm fortunate because we cook a lot in our house and, and I'm not bad at it. So I literally just like watched a 15-second video and made this crazy uh, mac and cheese that was like risotto style. I watched I'm it. Made, to your house. I made potato this chips. Is good. I made, you know, homemade potato chips to watch a 15 second video. I mean, granted, I know I'm fortunate that we cook, so I know what a mandolin is. I know what this is. I know what that is. I know, you know, so I thought the videos, it also takes, you know, cookbooks are beautiful. You open a cookbook, you yeah. want to eat that dish. Now, now what, what video has done is it brought it to life. So instead, so eventually we will have, you know, a hard bound cookbook with beautiful pictures and all that stuff's going to have to be recreated later, but you're also going to have the videos and all the things in the writing. It's like the behind the scenes. We're doing this when we bring this whole package, these 12 months of, of chapters and this, you know, X minutes of video, hours of video. And we say, okay, here it is. The, the, the publishing companies would be like, all right, not much to do here. <laughs> you know, yeah. you know, here's, the, it's, here's already, your, it's already sold. Yeah. Here's your advance so, and here's your like, all right, now here's <laughs> like, let's just put, let's put a cover on it. You know? So are you a YouTube junkie? 
No. So just like oh. face, just like Facebook, I never got YouTube. But TikTok is, you know, it's uh, the cliff notes of YouTube. You know, it's a, it is the cliff notes. Um, the, here's the reason I ask because I. I I, I am a YouTube junkie. Like I love YouTubers. I love vloggers. Most of them are way younger than me. And I, I just love the entire format. I, I feel like you can learn anything in the world and you can be entertained yeah. in so many ways. Um, so I, I have a story. I don't think I've told this on the podcast before. There's this magnificent maker. I want to say that she's a master's in material design, possibly out of Germany. Her name's Laura Kampf and super brainy, um, very articulate. She did this thing that a lot of YouTubers did during pandemic, which is where they buy a house. Like she, she worked in building it. So she buys a house, she's renovating a house. Anyway, she said on one of, on one of her live streams, because yes, I listened to this. Um, she said on one of her live streams that along with having the crew that is filming her renovating the house, they actually have a second crew that is filming the YouTube team as she creates the house. And that at the end of this project, it will be used to make a documentary about the whole experience. And this here's, here's what correlation in my head. People who watch that documentary for her, people who buy the finished product for you. Well, you know what? Possibly already have the recipes have already watched the videos. Like it's like Radiohead selling albums that they released for free. We all already had them, but we love Radiohead. So we went out and supported something where we even know how it ends. We know how the story ends, but man, the buy-in is profound. So I just, God, Dan, I love you. I wish you lived closer. Um, I, I do kind of feel like that the entire past 45, 50 minutes could all be described as this is what happens when somebody who does X spends 45 minutes a day understanding what's going on in the world beyond X. So I have one last question for you before I, before I let you off the hook. How do you make a color proprietary? Uh, so we're not there yet. And I know there's ways to trademark this and a couple of uh, places have done this. But um, I, that was my greatest achievement. Um, and, and I just, I just am so chuffed about this. But when we, when I just started to redesign my brand after 10 years, I didn't want to tinker. I mean, I created my original brand name because I had money to do it. And um, I didn't really want to tinker. So I waited to the 10th anniversary. I thought through it for you know three or four years. Like, what are we going to do? What's important? And the color blue was really important because it is like the most popular color. I think like 70% of the people in the world, their favorite color is blue. It's like just crazy. But it also defines the Mediterranean, that pastel nature of like those beautiful kind of, you know, hazy, beautiful uh, color tones. And um, so I did a lot of research and but my research led me to the Harvard Library and the Harvard Museums. And it just so happened that there was these stories written about this curator who, um, was managing the pigment collection at Harvard, and he and it was there because it was for it was for um, conservation. So if you so the original one of the early presidents of Harvard had this massive pigment collection, would travel around the world on boat like eighteen eighties, eighteen nineties, go to all these places, buy all these pigments, buy like crayons and chalks and paints and all this stuff, and he would just collect it. He just had this color fetish, 
And uh, so that created the, the initial uh, library. And um, and so you can call them up and say, okay, I need to know what, you know, what what was the chemical makeup of Crayola in 1960? Well, they have it. They have the 60s crayon. They took the chemistry of it, and they can now tell you this is the actual color makeup. Uh, so when you're rent, when you're conserving a, a crayon piece by Bastiat in the 80s, you can actually use that Crayola as opposed to the modern Crayola. Um, so. I, I, I randomly reached out to this guy because I was just so impressed. I said, hey, I'm going to be in Boston. I'd love to come visit. He was like, it's not an open to the public. And I told him what I was trying to do. And the only reason he wrote back was because his wife used to be a sommelier in Los Angeles. <gasps> Whoa. So when he knew it, when go I started songs. making one, there we go. He's, yeah. And he's like, oh my, he goes, yeah. And he literally said that. He goes, I would not have let you in here. If I didn't have a connection, my wife didn't have a connection to wine. I, I mean, I would have just said, "Sorry, you're not a public, and you're not you're not a professional in the industry. We don't just like to see what's So, um, and he let me in, and we met, and we become friends. And I send him wine every year uh, as a thank you. And um, and then when I sent him the first batches of wine, he kind of pointed me in this direction to you know Pompeian blue, which is a derivative of uh, Egyptian blue, which is a synthetic of ultramarine. But the Pompeii blue is much more um, weather-worn uh, and pastel And we found some during, we found some amazing frescoes that probably my great-grandparents who lived near the Moscow Hills uh, saw in their lifetime. And uh, we pulled a little, we pulled the color off of it. And um, and then when I sent that to the my uh, the, the curator at the Harvard uh, Pigment Library, he literally wrote me back and said, I am... Uh, registering this into the archive, the New York Bottle of Wine is now registered in the Harvard Pigment Library as Moscow Blue. And I was like, yeah. I was like yeah, "That's a great story!" Oh <laughs> my like, god! So that, and then, and I was just like, "Wow!" <laughs> so um, yeah, that was it. You're like, I a, rock. That, and that's you know, but that's the that's the anchor. That's a touchstone. That's a story that that involves so many different things. Um, the design team. The, the curator, this, the coincidence that his wife was a sommelier, uh, my great grandparents, you know, the tie back to Ultramarine, which I remember when I, a good friend of mine, Michael Cruz, who has the brand Ultramarine as a sparkling wine in California. He, 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 when I started talking about the, the color change, he's like, don't you touch my Ultramarine, get away from my blue. And, uh, and so, and like, but it was just, it was, it's amazing. Like, he's a great dude. I love, I love but, that story. But like, but the, it Thank just, you so it touched, much. It touched so many places. And yeah, you, there's, I'm sure it's hard to trademark color, but you don't even need to. It needs to be in the collective consciousness. Like, I yeah. am blue and Twitter blue and Louboutin red and Ferrari red and Vuv Clicquot yellow and your, your, yeah. your university, you know, whatever school you went to, the colors you associate with that, you know, Tar Heels. Um, or my school, and it just so happens my my school was kind of light blue. Um, but yeah, that's uh, color is color like scent is is definitely kind of a touchstone to what I'm trying to do. Um, it's a terrific story. You, that's I, so great. Uh, as a side note, I have to send you. I actually advertise. Mm. You know the Pod Save America guys. Um, this our. Mm. Probably one of the favorite uh, podcasts in the household. So I love them so much. And their their advertisement story, uh, 
I li- literally listen to their pod for the advertisements because they are so they're they're a bunch of comedians. They all worked in the Obama White House. They were speechwriters and and some mm-hmm. of them were comedians. And it's just their advertisements are incredible. I actually literally advertised Masakan on um, on the on their kind of crooked media network and have John Lovett like speaking the the Masakan ad and like talking through because they asked for bullet points and yeah. Um, it, Polly, I'm going to send it to you. We got to post it somewhere. People need to hear this. It, it, he made fun of like me being the only white wine winery in Napa Valley. He's like, oh, the only white You knew it was going in that direction, but it was the same time. But like, I think, you know, if, if a big corporation did that and that's the way they portrayed the, the their, their brand, they would have like went nuts. You have to hear this. I'll, I'll send it to you. Sorry, that's you can cut that. You no, cut no, that I, podcast, I love it. But, and I feel but. like I feel like I could talk to you for a whole other hour. We never <laughs> yeah. got into the metaverse. We never talked uh, NFTs. I have this whole list of things that I looked at that you're doing that we haven't gotten around to. But more than anything, I'm just so impressed with all the ways that you're building the brand. I live in a space where you know, because I am in digital marketing, it is always. Unfortunately, I hope my clients don't shoot me when they hear this. You know, short-termism and ROI drive a lot of marketing right now and trying to get them to understand that, you know, what I'm going to describe as permission marketing, you know, privacy, um, ethically appropriate marketing is important. Creative marketing is appropriate. Long-term marketing is, is important. And so hearing that just from your background and your ethos that this is how you've built the brand is, um, it's very affirming to what I dream of being able to do more of. So that, this <laughs> yeah. has been awesome for me. Thank well, you, I, I, I really appreciate no, it. Thank you. I appreciate it. I look forward to doing it in real life uh, soon, whether our paths cross or in the metaverse. Um, but, you know, I, I, I hate this idea. Someone just told me the other day, this whole short-term concept, uh, they work in PR and this restaurant wanted to get to a million likes or something or have a million likes. Of it. And they were like, what other pan-Asian pop-up, you know, hole in the wall window on social media has ever got anything close to a million. Like you have to put your like there's always a big perspective and this idea of you know this if everyone hears about virality but it's actually so little things go viral uh in a percentage. And I just I I agree it's long term. You do it, you keep spending, you keep you know no one does anything well without doing it for a long time. We've just gone really old school as marketers. People would be like, I thought that you were talking about innovation, but really, you're just oh my like God. No, innovation, old marketers. Every, everything old is new again. It's, you know, mm. people forgot how to connect with people. And they, they're they saying that social media and phones and stuff like that are not, are destroying our, our culture, but they're not. Like you're, they're not. You're, you're meeting people where they are. If they're on the phone, great. I'm not going to try to pull them off the phone. It's not my my job in life. My whole thing has always been that good digital actually makes people more human. That if you understand how how the digital spaces actually work and you respect that those are real people on the other side of all of those data points and clicks and everything else, well, we can get a really good, rich picture of who our people are and we can care for them better and we can cater to them, you know, like that notion, we didn't even talk about this, but the notion of customer centricity 
this kind of falls flat in wine because we've got people who are making wine because they're like, well, I wanted to make a wine this way, or this is what I like drinking, or this is what my family's made. Not, oh, is there a window in the market for, you know, that people want this and I can solve that need for them? Yeah. Um, you know, that's my old school, um, kind of continuation of what you're saying is no one, I've read a lot of white papers on, on what's going on in the crypto space and, NFTs and NFT companies, and not one of them actually talk about the need for something. Like no one needs this in their life. And I was shocked. I was like, whatever happened to like old school business blocking and tackling, doing data research, you're looking at things. And so everything, I love writing business plans. I love creating ideas and, and, and figuring out viability. And my, everything starts with the pie and how big the pie is. And I say this all the time. How big is the pie? What's your slice of it? How are you going to eat more or grow more? Or how or do you have to, can you grow the pie in general? Or do you have to steal from the pie? Because growing the pie and stealing from the pie is two totally different marketing initiatives. And they are very expensive to do both. So if you don't know that going in, then, and you're not willing to commit to that, there's nothing more innovative than understanding that principle about your business and what you're trying to achieve. And if you, it's then you just go in and do it. On that note, go be well. Thank you so much. This was awesome talking to you. Come see me in Spain and we'll drink Mediterranean wine together. (laughs) This was fun. Thank you so much. And that's a wrap. What a great interview. Thank you for listening and a great big thank you to Dan for joining me today. The Italian Wine Podcast is among the leading wine podcasts in the world and the only one with daily episodes. Tune in each day and discover all our different shows. Be sure to join us next Sunday for another look at the world of wine marketing. Thanks for listening to this episode of Italian Wine Podcast, brought to you by Vinitali Academy, home of the gold standard of Italian wine education. Do you want to be the next ambassador? Apply online at vinitaliinternational.com for courses in London, Austria, and Hong Kong, the 27th to the 29th of July. Remember to subscribe and like Italian Wine Podcast and catch us on SoundCloud, Spotify, and wherever you get your pods. You can also find our entire back catalog of episodes at italianwinepodcast.com.